0: So I've just heard that story of the conversion of Saul, or Saul's encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And it ends with Jesus, or with sorry, with Saul in Damascus. He receives his sight and he turns his life around. But we don't know what happened to his friends after they led him by the hand into Damascus, and we don't know what happened to his horse. Where did the horse go? There's no mention of the horse's fate in Acts chapter 9 when the story is told or in chapter 22 or 26 when Paul retells the story himself and and surely Saul, storming toward Damascus with those letters of, of authority in his hand must have been riding a horse. And I decided to do some research and I looked at some pictures. And there's a picture of the event on the screens now. Isn't that a beautiful horse? But where did it go? Where did it go afterwards? And there are many more pictures too. Here's another one. Again, an old master who focuses on the horse. Which figure in the picture is Saul? But we see the horse. And another one There's another example and there it's, this is by a German painter, the others are by Italians. There we see, the, there we see horses, and again, what happens? So, from the beginning, when people have, have depicted and retold this story, Saul's had a horse, but we don't know what happened to it. I think there's another one in the series, yes. Actually, I think the Italian painter Caravaggio is responsible for raising this question of what happened to the horse. But you know, in in Glenview, we have a stained glass window that is entirely devoted to the apostle Paul, to Saul, who became known as Paul. And it's a little difficult to see it, but there's a horse in the Clayton window. So take a closer look, take a closer look there. It, It is a little hard to see. There's the detail of, The horse, beautiful, beautiful brown horse, bolting off somewhere to the east or the west. Well, the thing is, there's no horse. As much as people love to tell and depict the story of Saul riding on a horse, and to think about Saul being knocked off his high horse to the ground, there's no horse. So where did it come from? It came from the imagination of painters and from stained glass artists over the centuries. So let's change the picture. Let's change all of the pictures that we're accustomed to seeing of this event and just have Saul standing up in the sunlight at noon, he said, when he retells the story, no horse. As Saul says, it happened at noon, and as an observant Pharisee, Saul would have stopped on the road and stepped to one side, turned to face Jerusalem to the south, and begun to pray the midday prayer. Pharisees, those who were devout, got up and prayed at nine and noon and three. And Saul knows the words, knows them very well. He performs every ritual to a T. Here's how he describes himself later on to the Christians in Philippi. If anyone else has a reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This is how Saul sees himself. He stands before God, certain that he's righteous and justified, except he's not righteous, justified, or right. But he stands before the God he knows, and he knows what he must do for God and for Israel's sake. He's building a career in Jerusalem, too. We meet him in, in the previous chapter where he stands and keeps watch over the coats that his elders and betters lay at his feet as they stone Stephen to death. And the chapter ends telling us that Saul approved of this. Well, Saul's going to go back from Damascus, and nobody's going to make him the coat check boy ever again after this. But Saul's not from Jerusalem. He's from Tarsus, a crossroads of the empire cultural, philosophical, religious, economic crossroads of the empire. And in those days, to say a man was from Tarsus was to say he knew all the words and loved them. A Tarsan was a man who loved and usually won debates. And compared to his elders and betters in Jerusalem. Saul is a man of the world. And as one who grew up and lived and worked in Tarsus, he has earned his Roman citizenship. That's like a golden ticket to go anywhere in the empire. And so he can offer that to the authorities in Jerusalem and say, you know, if this heresy, this blasphemy, this Jesus way... Spreads through the empire, I can go anywhere and chase them down. And he has an identity he can assume in the empire as well. Speaking Greek in Tarsus, he would have been called in his youth Paul. And so he can slip out into the empire, assume that identity, and move about freely. So he has a lot to offer. But as he stands there, as he stands there looking into the sunlight in prayer, a brighter light than the sun flashes around him. Now Saul knows what to do. If the glory of God is going to break through, you lay yourself flat on the ground right away. Saul knew what to do. He didn't expect ever to have to do it. But on this day, something happened while he was in prayer. So down he goes. He hears a voice. Well, there's always a voice in these encounters with God. There's always a call. And in this case, it's not that there's a voice. It's what the voice says that matters so much. Matters so much in this story. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, Saul doesn't ask for more details. He stands up as instructed, And he stumbles away, he needs help, because he's been blinded by the light. But he has seen the light, and I think he gets it, or starts to, in just those few words, that question, that answer from Jesus. It's as if Jesus hands Saul right then and there what will become the heart of all that he teaches about God and God's way with the world, and about humanity and humanity's relation to God. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Saul, who will soon go back to his Greek name, Paul, falls flat, but he doesn't fall off a horse. He doesn't fall as far as we think. His passion his quick thinking, his disciplined mind, his knowledge of scripture, his view of the world, all are foundations for his future life. A new life, but a life built on who he was before, and this is the one, Christ tells Ananias, that I have chosen. Saul can't see, but he understands. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So is is Jesus saying, if you mess with my friends, you're messing with me, so lay off, Saul? Is that what he's saying? Well, in a way, yes. But Saul hears it and spends the rest of his life working out the implications of those words. And so here is some of his teaching. The church is Christ's body in the world. Christ is in us, and we are in Christ. He is the source of our life. How we live together in this world must mirror the new world Christ has prepared for us. We are his representatives, ambassadors on earth. In fact, Paul goes so far as to say we are married to Christ. He is the groom, the church, the bride. So Paul's favorite images describe unity among believers and union and communion with God Through Jesus Christ. Now, Paul learns quickly, yes, that what he has done to the followers of the way, he has done to the one whose way they follow. He'll never be able to forget that, and he will never forgive himself for what he has done. But he also learns, as he writes to the Romans later on, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I know we only hear those words at funerals, but we should hear them every day. So, yes, it's a little, if you mess with Jesus' friends, you're messing with him. But it's mostly, if you meet Jesus' friends, you're meeting him. And it's supposed to be If you're looking for Jesus, you'll see him in us. And it's all there in those few words that Saul and his companions hear on the great northern road to Damascus. It'd be a lot easier for us if we could just read about Paul and read the letters he wrote and the letters written in his name and find a catalog of certainties, you know, never fail directions for living, Unfortunately, the New Testament isn't discipleship for dummies. But remember the authors of the New Testament, and especially Paul. No, they're not making it up as they go along, not exactly. They have God's guidance through God's Spirit, but their words aren't dictated. They have to choose words to try to express and explain truth, truth that's more than words. And Paul's thoughts about what Jesus means for the world and how we should live in the world as followers of Jesus, they develop over time through experience and trial and error. And yes, he contradicts himself, and he's not always right. But time after time, he goes back to what he heard on the road to Damascus, and everything else is commentary, the kind of commentary the rabbis taught him to write with faith and creativity. He didn't fall far or hard enough and he didn't get kicked in the head by a horse to lose all of that. Last week I went to see the new movie, Paul, Apostle of Christ. Now, I usually avoid, and I am avoiding, the current spate of Christian or inspirational films, but I thought as sermon preparation I should go see Paul, Apostle of Christ. I wanted to see what they did with his story. I had a private screening. There wasn't, was no one else in the theater, and I think that, that, that says something about the wisdom of only having it down deep downtown at the Scotiabank Theater. I hope it's doing better out in the suburbs. It's, it's okay. It's not the best Christian slash religious slash inspirational film there is, but it's not all bad. It's, it's as much about Luke as it is about Paul. The idea being that Luke sneaks into Jerusalem to see Paul in prison and Paul's last days in this world. And Paul dictates the book of Acts to Luke in a few visits, over a few visits to to Paul in his cell. And when he's almost finished writing, Luke tells Paul, there's a whole new generation that must learn of your certainties, plural, plural, And yet, throughout the film, Paul is beset by doubts and questions. He's only certain of one thing. One thing, that he's righteous, that he has the right relationship with God through faith, by the grace and mercy of God in Jesus Christ. It is all God's doing. It is not because... But it is despite what Paul has done. And nothing can change that. Nothing can sever that relationship. Not even the sword that severs Paul's head from his body. That's, that's not a spoiler. We know how the story ends. But nothing can change that for us and sever that relationship. Nothing we might do could ever stretch our relationship with God through Jesus Christ to the breaking point. And in case you're wondering about the movie, Saul doesn't have a horse. Only a Roman officer rides a horse. Amen.